0: Thank you, Grant, Liz, Kinto. Appreciate you guys. Well, good morning, Pillar. We're uh, back in James. Took a little detour last week. Um, We're hitting, thanks, Grant, uh, back in chapter 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles to verses 1 through 12, chapter 5, we're going to hit the home stretch of James here, and next week we're going to finish up. Before I pray, I want to uh, welcome the Ransoms back to Okinawa, back to our church family. We missed you guys. Um, it's great for you to be back. I can grow my beard back out now and stop pretending to be you, filling in for John. I can be me now. Stop introducing myself as the lead pastor. Sorry about that, John. Just wanted to see how it felt. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of weight. We appreciate the weight that you guys carry, you know, whenever you labor among us, um, all that you do, it's, uh, you carry, you carry the people's burdens. Um, you hurt whenever we hurt and you, you laugh when we laugh and, um, we thank you for doing that. You don't just, um, you don't lecture us, John, you come in and you give us the word and you, uh, you live life with us. You, you guys, you guys live it out. So thank you. We're glad to have you back. So let's pray. We'll get into verse one. I won't do what I did in the first service and accidentally not read the scriptures. So we're gonna preach from the scriptures in the second service. All the people at 9 a.m., sorry. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, applying your word by sending your spirit to guide us into the truth. Um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would Use me today, my feeble words and my feeble understanding, um, this heart right here that is not perfect that you are still working in. I pray that, Lord, um, you would work through me today to edify your people, to build up your church, um, help us to understand and to glean from your word here and to uh, get what we need today uh, to obey you, to be on mission for you, to rightly understand the gospel that we may proclaim it and live it out. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Starting verse one here, I'm gonna read through verse 12. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful." But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. In chapter 5 here, James continues a pointed rebuke that he began in chapter 4. In his study on the book of James, Luke Chung writes that Here, James condemns worldviews that leave God out of account, whether it be the boastful self-reliance that we see in the merchants at the end of chapter four, or the self-indulgent rich at the beginning of chapter five. They both brazenly ignore God's ultimate judgment. But let's look at this here. And before we tune out, we see in the first six verses, these guys are rich, you know, Rich people, oh, okay, this doesn't apply to me, right? Let's look at really the target of James' rebuke. A couple months ago when we began this series, we saw that James was making similar references in, in chapter one to the rich and the judgment that is to come upon them. And when I spoke on that, I talked about how James is not simply talking about having a certain status of wealth, And he's not saying that simply being rich would make someone worthy of condemnation. On the contrary, the simple fact of being wealthy or poor does not make someone righteous or unrighteous. There are certainly righteous, rich, and unjust poor. But James is not grouping people together by wealth status. It is not mere wealth status that he's talking about. He's bringing to mind a common image in the mind of his readers. They see in their everyday lives They see a lot of rich people using their wealth and their power to give themselves the royalty treatment while treating their fellow humans as subhumans. They fatten themselves while others starve right in front of them. There is a parallel to Jesus's story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. You can follow along if you turn to Luke 16, uh, starting in verse 19, but I'm gonna read it here. And was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. It is a very similar picture that Jesus gives in his story to the one that James implies whenever he talks about the rich and the poor, their current experience in this life, and their future destinies in in eternity. Um, James actually um, mirrors and echoes a lot of things in Jesus's sermon on the mount and, and other teachings that Jesus had you see a lot of parallels um, there is not a condemnation of riches in either Jesus's teaching or in James's teaching not the condemnation of riches themselves but a condemnation of withholding the extra that could relieve people in their current misery There is a condemnation of giving oneself a standard of living that is so far above what is needed while not lifting a finger or spending a dime to help those who don't have what they need for today. There's something for us to ponder here. I don't know if anybody in this room would qualify as super rich. But at the same time, I don't know if anybody here would qualify as super poor either. Um, nobody in here, to my knowledge, is living uh, on a dollar a day, which a large amount of the world lives on. There's something here for us to ponder because if the condemnation in verses one through six does not correspond to wealth status so much as it does to how they treated people, then maybe you and I should pay attention as well because some of these sins are within our reach and we have opportunity to take part in these sins as well. We can defraud people can't we? We can defraud people. That's within reach of us. We don't have to be super rich to do that. We can indulge ourselves to the point where we're not just enjoying the good things that God has given us, but making pleasure and comfort an idol. We have enough to be able to do that. We could put our trust and our savings or a retirement account, both of which are very good things that I encourage people to do. But if our hearts place their ultimate trust in those things, we have taken God out of the picture and are falling into the same area of sin that these people did when they laid back treasures for the last days. Kind of like when Jesus also told a story about um, the man who built bigger barns and, and brought in his harvest and he said, rest soul for you have everything to enjoy now. And Jesus said, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. That's a picture of a person that not just, not just stewarding and being wise and, and putting back a retirement, that's somebody who is trying to put all on this life to the neglect and exploitation of others. It's all about me and what I have in this life. And I'm not even thinking about the life to come. I'm not thinking about when, when could Christ return? When could my soul be required of me? We should pay attention to this. Another thing for us to think about is how the presence of passages like this throughout scripture, and like the one in Luke 16, reveal to us how close helping the poor is to God's heart. Here on gate two street, we've got people who sit outside of our, our gates and they beg. I'm not making any comments about, I don't even know their lifestyle. I don't know what they go home to if they have a home or what, I'm not making any comments about that. All I know is that there's people out here begging. And I'm not saying um, that you have to give or should give or this is a barometer of how good a Christian you are or how much generosity you have and everything. You can't condemn somebody based on one, ba- one case of like, well, you didn't give to that person. You know, it's, it's not about that. I'm just bringing them up as a, a case that is right in front of us, just bringing that up. Um, I'm aware of quite a few pillar people who have shown quiet unannounced generosity and love towards those people out here again no condemnation if you have not I'm just bringing it up as a, as a case that is right in front of us and don't worry if that's you your treasure safe in heaven I'm not going to name your name I just want to commend that display of generous Christ like love because if you've done that you may not know what they go home to they may they may they may have a nice house to go home to or something. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but they might. It might be a scam. But if you have done that for the purposes of your intent in your heart, that was a display of generosity, of Christian generosity. Now, when it comes to generosity in the body of Christ, just like many other topics, there's a range of personal approaches and convictions. Some believers are going to emphasize this open-handed aspect of generosity to freely give. Their mindset is to, I was freely given to, so I wanna freely give as I was freely given to. Others are going to emphasize the stewardship aspect, maybe asking some questions, making observations with the intent of stewarding how they give and ensuring that their giving is most impactful. I think both approaches lie within a range of support uh, from scripture and can be fruitful. And I would encourage you as a church to talk with one another and share with one another your approaches to generosity. We can learn from one another. Hey, what do you do whenever you, you walk by somebody out here who's begging? Or what do you, what do, you do whenever it comes to, um, you know, somebody has a special need in the church or something like that? What, what thought process do you go to and how do you approach that? Asking each other these questions and sharing with each other, we can rub shoulders and we can actually help make each other's approach more robust. And I would say that we should just be cautious that whenever somebody does share their approach, that we affirm their heart, affirm their intent, uh, and we learn from them and that we would not pass judgment on them. You know, sometimes we, we have our view and we're like, I've researched this. It's the best way. And we get into like, it's the only way. And we have all these scriptures that say, that we, that we use to say like, here's why I don't do it your way, because it's wrong. Well, there's some ways that are wrong, but there's a lot of approaches. There's a lot of variability that can be fruitful, a lot of approaches. And we, we should be careful in passing judgment on each other. And we we want to avoid extremes. For instance, open-handedness can go so far to abandon personal responsibility. If we go to the extreme of open-handedness, we could abandon that personal responsibility, that call to the person we're giving to, to personal responsibility. Or we could go into the extreme of trying to control the impact of our giving so much that we stifle any work of the Holy Spirit of generosity in our life altogether. We can use questions about, well, will they really use what I just gave them right? Or will they, will, they, will, they, will they really benefit from it? Those are good questions, actually. Those are not bad questions. We should ask those questions. But if those questions are being used as excuses not to give, if we're justifying our motivation not to give, it's not the way to go about that. Ask those questions, but don't use them as excuses. Well, I don't even know if they'd benefit from it, so I'm, I'm just not gonna give. I, I Ask the question for real. Find out. If they can benefit from it, then you've found an opportunity to give expression to Christ-like love. If you are that careful, calculating, research type, be careful of what I call, this is my term, you can't Google this, Netflix documentary syndrome. This is my term. Trademark pending. Let me give you the backstory of that term. Netflix has a lot of well-made documentaries. Yeah, some of you know this. They make the case against this, against that. I haven't found one that's for anything yet. Just against everything. They should just make a documentary against everything, and just be done with it. Melissa and I, just to give an example, Melissa and I watched a bunch of documentaries on the food industry and healthy eating. One of the biggest mistakes I have made. (laughs) Healthy eating's good. It's good. We should eat healthy. We should be aware of things. We should. We should be well informed. But my frustration with it was that every documentary that I watched cut out another 25% of the foods I eat on a regular basis. <laughs> one of them would be like, you cannot eat this. This is like you're eating poison. And the rest of this, it's okay. And the next one, would be like, no, that stuff's not okay. That's poison too because of this, this, and this. But these few things are right. Eventually, After watching all of these documentaries, I was like, what can I eat? And the the conclusion was a resounding kale. (laughs) In moderation. Be careful. Too much kale, poison. (laughs) Killing yourself. So... We can, we can be careful and calculate and research and try to inform ourselves to a certain extent, but if we place, if we, if we do that so much that we paralyze ourselves to not doing anything, we could just become, uh, uh, well, there's the, there's the phrase, paralysis by analysis. There can be just so much that you put in that that I don't even know what to do. Like I was at the end of, watching all of these. I was like, what do I do? I'm gonna go have a cheeseburger and think it over. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> so be good stewards, be good stewards, but exercise some faith. It takes faith. You'll never be able to eliminate faith from the life of following Jesus. It's not even, it shouldn't be our aim, but in, in a way we see ourselves running toward that whenever we, we research, 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 At some point, we just have to be comfortable with trusting God. At some point, we just have to be comfortable saying God is ultimately in control of the impact of my giving. I'm gonna do my part. I'm gonna be be asking the questions I need to ask, but at some point, I just need to let God be in control of that and trust him. And then we also, when we give, we need to give with grace. We need to give graciously because we have been given to graciously. We're all sinners. None of us deserve anything. Like the, like the debate that has been going on for decades about the deserving and the undeserving poor. I don't think that those terms are Helpful to a certain extent, because really from the scripture's perspective and how God sees us, when he looked down on us, he didn't say there's some deserving people and some undeserving people. He looked at us and he said, the whole lot is wicked. None of them are deserving, but I'm gonna show love and I'm gonna send my son. That's what he did. When Christ rescued you, he found you laying on the side of the road hung over from binging like an addict on whatever you desired, faint from the emptiness that your self-centered life left you with. That's how he found you. You didn't sit down before him all put together and interview, and then he says at the end of the interview, you're hired, you can be a Christian. You're impressive. I want you on my team. No, he found you bruised and bloodied and beaten and rebelling against his kingdom. Found nothing in you to suggest yourself to him. You smelled. You and I, we smelled whenever we came to God. When it, our, our life was like bad B.O. before the Lord. Whenever he came to us, it's like, man, you need some help. Some bad B.O. there. And your righteousness, it wasn't like a nice business suit that you came to the interview in. It was tattered. It was torn. It was grimy. It was ugly. But... He came and he picked you up. He filled you up. He cleaned you up. And he clothed us in his righteousness. Righteousness we did not deserve, but he gave it to us. There was a, uh, there was a preacher at the Koza men's conference yesterday. And he said, aren't you glad that God's not fair? Whenever we say, why is life not fair? Or we complain that life is not fair. Trust me, you don't want life to be fair. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. You are privileged and you are honored to receive what he gives you because you don't deserve it. In verse one here, we see another aspect of God's generosity. We, we see him stretching his arms out all day to a people who are stubborn that will probably not heed his words. Weep and howl, James says, in an urgent call to repentance and humility. For the miseries that are coming upon you, repent in the face of impending judgment. But the words and the rest of the passage seem to imply that they will not. And they kind of echo Jesus' statement whenever he said, the rich will enter the kingdom of heaven like a camel going through the eye of a needle. He says in verse five, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Verse three read, you've laid up treasure in the last days, but you have merely fattened yourselves for a day of slaughter. They expected to enjoy blessed days. It is even possible that they deluded themselves to the point that they thought that their riches were a blessing from God. The riches that they had gotten by defrauding people and by oppressing people They're like, I'm blessed. Hang up the the sign outside, hun. This home is blessed by God. But the end of this paragraph has an implication that they generally will not repent. And it it likewise mirrors the prospect of the unjust rich that is implied at the end of Jesus's story of the rich man and Lazarus. God in his mercy and his generosity still moves people to call them to Repentance. You and I can fall in the same ditches without being super wealthy. We can make comfort and pleasure our idols. We have enough at our disposal to be able to fall into that ditch. We're supposed to enjoy the good things that God has given us. But if they become our idols, then we're falling into the same ditch. We're stuffing ourselves while others are starving. The language used here against the unjust rich is very strong, so we're just, we're just talking about just now the what is the target of James's rebuke really? He's talking to the unjust rich, but he's also talking to us and anybody who has the opportunity to fall into this area of sin and the posture of God 's people towards this injustice, when we see it and the mode of attacking it, injustice, we see here whenever James is talking and he, we see his rhetoric is very strong, not only in English, but also in the original language. But keep in mind this, as his rhetoric heats up, although it is condemning, it comes from a prophetic standpoint that lays all vengeance to God, all of it to God. Despite James's words in the passage implying here that he doesn't think they will turn from their ways, he doesn't pronounce final judgment on them. He calls out their works. He judges those works as unjust in light of God's revealed truth and law. And he rightly tells them the consequences of persevering in this path, which is that miseries are coming upon you. But despite saying those things, he doesn't categorize them as human trash. He doesn't advocate violence against them. He doesn't call for them to be destroyed. He doesn't call for people to camp outside their houses and wait to do violence against them. James does not do this. Nothing in James's words here is calculated to make people fear violence from the church. On the contrary, the people in the church were fearing violence from them. If you look in James 2, James says, isn't not the rich who oppress you? But James's words here are not calculated to fear violence from the church, but instead to fear God. He's saying, fear God. You don't fear God, and that's why you're living this way. This is despite the overwhelming case that is against them. They defrauded the hardworking people who went out into the heat and mowed their fields, and harvested their grain. They financially and judicially, using the legal system and hiring their high-powered lawyers to exploit widows and take widows' houses, and orphans and strangers and the poor and the socially powerless and outcast. They even perverted justice to the point that the righteous would be condemned and murdered. He does not resist you, ends verse 6. But some probably in the early church did want to resist and to do so possibly violently. After a while of enduring this kind of oppression and seeing your innocent friends put to death to cover up for the sins of the unjust rich, it would be natural to slip into a mindset of grumbling and hatred. But look at this. James in his rhetoric, gives all vengeance to God. He doesn't condone a mob mentality whenever people carry out their own form of mob justice. Instead, James says in James 1, 19 through 20, he says that let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God no matter how righteous we feel in our anger, no matter how much evidence we feel we have against uh, a person or a group of people, no matter how right we think we are, we should always be suspicious of our anger. Only God has truly pure righteous anger. All of us we've got a little bit of self mixed in or maybe a lot of self and it gets mingled in there and we lose our sober mindedness and all of our thoughts and everything that we think and decide to do gets filtered through this state of emotion where we're being led by emotion. We can't let ourselves do that. Even if we are being oppressed and being persecuted, James says, let the good judge who's standing at the door Let him render his verdict and hand out his judgment in his wise timing. Now, moving to verse 7, James' tone changes quite a bit. From judgment to encouragement as his uh, addressees change. He looks at his audience of believers and directly addresses them. Once again, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. These words call for patient endurance, to take hope in the Lord in the here and now when justice is waiting. For some, justice has been waiting for a short while. For some, justice has been waiting for a long time and their cries have gone up before the Lord for a long time, many years, maybe hundreds of years and their cries are reaching God. Their cries are heard and he wants them to know your cries are heard. The Lord is not deaf. The Lord is not slow. He will come and he will do good judgment in his timing. In the meantime, be patient. Justice is waiting, but justice will happen. And James refers to the mindset of a farmer. There's a particular type of patience that a farmer has. A farmer waits patiently. He knows the times and the seasons. He knows that the earth needs to receive the early and the late rains before the harvest can be received. We see this in scripture that the autumn rains occurred just after planting and the spring rains came just before the harvest. We see that in Jeremiah and in the book of Joel. The farmer knows that the harvest will indeed come, but it will not come overnight. So while the farmer is ready to do the work and he's eagerly expecting the harvest, his expectation is an informed expectation that keeps him sober-minded and steadfast in his daily work. This is in sharp contrast to the boastful merchants at the beginning of chapter four that say, God, whatever, we can plan to do what we wanna do and we're gonna do it. What we say is gonna come to pass. We're gonna go do this, we're gonna go do that. Just gonna ignore what those guys are saying about God may require our soul sometime soon. We ignore that. We're just gonna do what we're gonna do. And then the exploitation perpetrated by the rich at the beginning of chapter five also ignores what is coming, just ignores it in order to continue in their sin. But the farmer doesn't ignore what's coming. He looks forward to what is coming and he works patiently and he waits patiently in accordance with what is to come. Not making the most of his current circumstances but working for the harvest. In verse nine here, we see James warn us against grumbling against one another. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Why is James exhorting God's people not to grumble against one another? I thought it was God's people versus the rich, right? Not really, but some people get into that mindset, us versus them. Some people get into the mindset of it's this part of the church versus that part of the church. That's whenever things are pretty toxic. Now, why is James exhorting them in the midst of all of this? To answer that question, I gotta take you to a very unexpected place. You probably didn't think that you were gonna go here. You may not wanna go here, but I'm taking you there. We're going. I'm going to Illinois in the 90s, Sorry but it was back when we only had two governors in prison. There's now four, or they had gone to prison. Grown up in Illinois, did not have a lot of advantages. Southern Illinois. One thing we did have in the 90s was the Michael Jordan era Chicago Bulls. Come on, you Knicks fan? (laughs) Um, I watched almost every game with my dad. In the 95, 96 season, we, they were so dominating, we expected to win every single game. We sat down, here we go, we're gonna win. Because they won 88% of the time. That's pretty good. Nobody's grumbling with 88% win percentage. High fives all around. Feels great to be on top. Everybody's letting things roll off their back. Everything's chill, laughing, having a good time. Not so on the flip side when things are not going Right? there are certain human behaviors that appear when a team is losing. Beers are tossed. Just TVs are destroyed. When a company is failing, I've, I've been, I've been not a failing company, I've been part of uh, teams where things were going really hard. People are under a ton of stress and pressure and they are not going right. And there's this overwhelming temptation to start pointing fingers. The climate and the mood change. Finger pointing and blaming begins to occur as members of the team are tempted to turn on their own teammates in an attempt to justify themselves. Now, Chicago had another team in the 90s, kind of the opposite of the Bulls during that time, the Chicago Cubs. The Cubs went 108 years without winning the World Series before they won it in 2016. Before they won, it was year after year of losing and frustration. In 2003, these frustrations boiled over in a playoff game. The Cubs were winning three to nothing and a fan reached over the wall and disrupted a play. And Cubs fans look back at that moment as the pivotal moment at which the series turned. They lost the game and then they lost the series. That man's Name and address was released publicly after that. He began receiving death threats, death threats. They crushed him. They turned on him. He was a Cubs fan. He wasn't the other team. He was a diehard Cubs fan. Now think not only of just sports or companies where only trophies and money are at stake. Think of a community enduring, intense, ongoing, relentless violent persecution, and this is the early church. Theologian Peter Lightheart writes, when persecution intensifies, passions in the church heat up and set disciples against one another. Early Christians were under a constant threat of death. According to historians, James, who wrote this letter, was martyred 15 years after writing it. He died a violent death. So under, un, under such pressure and stress, it would have been tempting to find someone to blame. You know what? It was going really good, guys. When Peter preached that sermon, we were all speaking these languages and, and uh, like 3,000 people got saved. It was going really good until that guy right over there joined us and then went to heck, you know? Like I, that guy over there, he made the Pharisees mad and, and maybe him too. He started saying stuff and it's these guys' fault. That's whenever why don't we we exercise some church discipline here and, uh, you know, some scapegoats. Those are convenient. Whenever things are not going wrong, we look for those scapegoats. But James says, cool it, guys, cool it. And I know it's hard because you've seen friends die. I know it's hard because you saw the widow down the street get kicked out of her house by this guy. He doesn't need another house. It's his seventh house. He doesn't need it. He took it. But cool it whenever it comes to grumbling against one another, when it comes to advocating violence, when it comes to drifting from the very spirit in which we started. He encourages them to establish their hearts in patience, consider the consequences of their words, and to cool down, not only in grumbling against one another, but also, you see, in verse 12, he cautions against heating up the rhetoric by adding God's name to their statements, making oaths. By doing either of these things, we're assuming the place of God by passing judgment on people, final judgment, and by taking God's name and, and trying to reinforce our statements by using his name. We're heading towards our conclusion now. We look at verses 10 and 11. James turns to the example of the prophets. While the example of the farmer showed patience, the prophets are an example of patient suffering for speaking in the name of the Lord. And that's something that James' readers could identify with because they were persecuted for speaking in the name of Jesus and testifying to the world about their, rescued, their rescuing King. But James doesn't leave it there. He tells him to remember them. And he also gives one more example. And he references the story of Job, where we can see the purposes of God in a very complete way. We can see the purposes of God coming full circle. Job remained steadfast through the most terrible experiences. He was tempted to curse God and die. And I want to ask you some concluding questions. Brothers and sisters, Is something that you're going through right now, something that you're experiencing or that you've experienced in the past that's still hanging on, tempting you to walk away from the church? Is it tempting you to complain about a brother or sister in an attempt to make yourself feel justified and feel better? Ponder James' words here. The, the, The things you're experiencing, they're not random. There's nothing malfunctioning in the sovereign plan of God. Peter says in his letter, he says, when the fiery trial comes upon you, don't think it's strange. Things are going the way they should. Jesus told you that you'd be persecuted. They persecuted him. And much more, if you are following him, they'll persecute you. What you are experiencing is in exact accordance with God's compassionate, merciful purposes for your life. It doesn't seem directly compassionate and merciful. It may seem totally Brutal. It may seem like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just lost. I'm questioning, I'm left questioning like, how could God use this? Don't stop there. Keep asking, go to God's word. Talk to others in your missional community. If you're not part of a missional community, participate in the life of a missional community. Get to know people and let others get to know you. Talk to them about what you're going through. Join a fight club. If you are more comfortable with talking about those things just one-on-one, fight clubs are even smaller groups. Talk to somebody about that and rub shoulders with God's people and search the scriptures together and let yourself be encouraged and held up while you are you're limping and you're maybe you're maybe at that place where you're like, you're not in a good place. You're like, if somebody does that to me again, I'm leaving. If somebody leaves me out of this or that or slights me in that way or embarrasses me that way or talks to me that way again or whatever, insert offense here, whatever has offended you, we've all been offended or maybe it's not coming through a person, maybe you're just going through a circumstance that's just absolutely brutal and it's it's really hard to reconcile with uh, the compassion and mercy of God you can reconcile it, but it may be a long journey. It may be a long journey. And I tell you though, this journey in Christ is the one that ends in healing. This journey in Christ is the one that ends in blessing. This is the path that leads to life, not the path of, you know what I've been doing? I've been doing things for other people for a long time. It's time to do me. That path is the same path that these people were going down. You may not be rich, but that's the path they were going down. They were doing them. Like, to heck with other people. Exploit them, defraud them. You may be saying, to heck with community. To heck with the church. I'm gonna use Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever a missional community meets. I'm gonna use that time to focus on me. But Jesus Teaches us, and James also does, that whenever we focus on ourselves, we end up even more empty than we began. But whenever we turn to Christ, whenever we give to others, whenever we avoid grumbling and instead speak encouragement over others, even when we're hurting and we're under constant pressure and stress, that's whenever we find life and encouragement right there. Look ahead to what is to come, not just what you see right now, and establish your heart in Christ and in the hope his gospel brings. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your encouragement in tough times. You're not trying to take away from us the good things. You're not trying to take away from us a truly good life. We know, Lord, that true life is in Christ. We know that whenever you're chasing us away from sin, you're not chasing us away from something that has really anything lasting for us, anything to offer us, but you're chasing us away from things that end in destruction, things that end in emptiness. You're chasing us toward life. You're chasing after us and pursuing us. We thank you for not giving up on us. You have held out your hands, though we have turned aside so many times. You hold open your arms to us and you're merciful and you're compassionate, even in what we're going through right now. We thank you for the examples in your word, the example of the prophets and of Job. We thank you for including them in your word and to applying them to our hearts, even now supernaturally as Hearts are open, you're applying these things now. And we just, uh, we thank you. We pray that throughout this week that you'd convict us and encourage us and lead us to not be just hearers of the word, but doers acting on this that we've heard this morning. We thank you. We pray that you work in our body, Lord, bringing us together, making us a people that build one another up, encourage one another, and do good works and give.